0: Good evening. My name is Blake Dozier and I have the privilege of serving as the youth and family minister here at Oldham Lane. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad that you're here. Glad that you're here to share this evening as worship with us before Christmas. I know we have a lot of family in town and this is an exciting time. It's a good time to be together as family. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, we'll get it it adjusted. I'm not saying anything important right now, so you're not missing out on anything. But this is important because I want to ask you to think through this with me. If I asked you what single event in your personal history has changed your life the most, how would you answer? I mean, I really want you to think about that. What single event in your personal history has changed your life the most? might have been a death or a birth, a marriage or a divorce, a good choice, a bad choice. Something that was maybe in your control or something that was out of your control? An accident or an illness? You know, I think we're a a pretty motley crew here, and it would be impossible to speak to each of our situations individually. And in fact, as I kind of reflected on my life and tried to answer that question for myself, I had difficulty zeroing in on one particular thing. There were a handful of things that came to mind, I remember the months leading up to mine and Brianna's wedding, how everyone talked about how big the change was going to be, and and you listened to them, and then then afterwards you realize how right they were. Your life is never the same after a decision like that. I remember even more the comments before Braxton was born, our first child, how it will change your life more than you could ever imagine, and boy, did it. I remember before Brooklyn was born, Um, Everyone talked about the difference in one kid and two kids and how that would change your life in ways you couldn't expect, and they were right. I don't really remember people saying much about the third kid. Maybe because the kids were screaming so loud we couldn't hear them, and maybe because everyone had given up on on us at that point and realized we weren't capable of rational thinking. Um, For me, having kids has really rocked my world bigger than just about any single thing. It's changed every waking moment of my life. It has changed our marriage. It's changed the dynamic in our home. It's changed our finances. It's changed the vehicles we drive. It's changed the cases that we put on our cell phones. It's changed the food that we eat, the television shows we watch, the music we listen to, the way that we dress. I cannot think of an aspect of my life that our children haven't changed. Despite our living in a religiously ambiguous culture, Christmas still has a hold on remnants of its spiritual roots. I know historians debate the accuracy of the timing of Christmas. Perhaps it wouldn't even be a debate anymore. But we traditionally, as a culture, still talk about the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. He's the focal point of the nativity scenes. His name forms the first half of the name of the holiday. And without the miraculous birth of Jesus, there would be no life or teachings of Jesus. There would be no death or resurrection of Jesus, and there would be no hope of salvation for you. Jesus changed everything. During our short time tonight, we're going to focus on the change that Jesus brought, but we're going to do it in a pretty narrow way. We're going to look at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of someone we don't often talk about. I want to look at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. And as we do, I hope it inspires you to see things a little differently this holiday season. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. We're going to start with the text, and then I'll make my first point after we've examined it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. and he called his name Jesus. You know, Matthew is, is really the only gospel account that has much to say about Joseph. We get a little bit from the Gospel of Luke. He's not really a, script, uh, a figure that Scripture puts much emphasis on. But I believe that we have something to learn from him. And the beginning of this passage that we just read gives us more insight into his character and nature... I believe, than any other passage in Scripture. This would have been an exciting time in Joseph's life. I mean, if you think about it and you put yourself in his shoes, um, those of you who are or have been married, um, when you answer my first question, you would have, without a doubt, included that event as one of the major life-changing events for you. Now, I realize marriage then and now is approached a little bit differently. Um, In fact, it's evident from this short passage, even in verse 18, that it was approached differently because he was going to divorce her during their engagement period, we might call it. But just because our cultures differ in the process of marriage doesn't mean it was devoid of emotion or feeling. In fact, if anything, I believe this passage highlights for us Joseph's care for Mary and how he intended to handle the situation. Look back to verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Can you imagine the conversation that Joseph and Mary had to have? Have you ever thought about the difficulty... Can you be, imagine the emotional turmoil that he would have been going through? Can you imagine being handled the difficult task of sorting through Mary's claims and what you know to be fact about how babies are born? In fact, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Joseph and how he determined to handle the situation. The text says he was a just man, that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was going to handle the situation quietly. And as we read into verse 20, we see that this wasn't a snap decision. This was something that he had thought about. Verse 20 says, "But as he considered these things." in other words, this was a process, not something rationally determined because of an emotional response to a difficult situation. This was the result of careful consideration about what was the best course of action giving an unfortunate situation he found himself in. Not exactly a fun turn of events if you're Joseph. The time in your life when your plans are coming together, when you're marrying someone you care about, when you're transitioning into adulthood, you're about to start a life and you're about to start a family of your own and it all comes crashing down. And then the angel intervenes. Don't fear to marry Mary the child is from God, his name will be Jesus, he'll save the people from their sins. We tend to read through the passage as if the announcement from the angel somehow made everything okay. I mean, in on one hand it did. It satisfied two things. Mary was not unfaithful, and Joseph was not sinning by marrying her. But consider this. Joseph was still about to marry a pregnant woman in a culture where out-of-wedlock pregnancies um, were despicable. People could and would do the math. Joseph was going to serve as the father figure for a child that was not his. He was going to assume the burden of feeding the child, clothing the child, protecting the child, disciplining the child, educating the child. And Joseph didn't know this yet, but he was assuming a lot of social ostracization uh, for fathering the weird kid that no one liked, the rebel who was bucking the system. And then he was going to go through the pain of watching a child be ridiculed and put on trial and publicly executed. The announcement from the angel didn't turn everything into a bed of roses. What the angel was asking Joseph to do was really big, and it wasn't easy, and it came at a great cost to him personally. Jesus was about to turn Joseph's life upside down, and Joseph responded with obedience. Turn your attention to verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Obedience. The story continues. Jesus is born. Wise men from the east see a star. They come to worship him. When they inquire of King Herod, his whereabouts, King Herod's jealousy starts to churn. A lot of you know the story. The chief priest and the scribes, they recall from the prophet Micah that a ruler of the people was going to come up from Bethlehem. Herod's not going to have any of that on his watch. um, And so he connives a plan. We pick up the story in verse 13. Now when they had, in chapter 2, verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So as we continue reading, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I think maybe the atrocity of what Herod does in slaughtering all of the male toddlers in the region of Bethlehem can cause us to miss the fact that yet again, Joseph's life was completely turned upside down because of Jesus. They didn't just move, they left the country. I don't have much experience with moving. I think I may be stuck in Abilene for forever. Um, I haven't been able to escape. I don't necessarily want to, but a lot of you do have a lot of experience with moving. Maybe you moved because you wanted to, or maybe you moved under duress. Maybe you didn't want to, but your parents made you or your job made you, or your kids made you, or your health made you. And I'm going to assume that that was not a pleasant process. Because of Jesus, because of the son that wasn't his, Joseph had to take his family, he had to leave his country, he had to leave the security of the familiar, he had to leave behind his connections, probably a lot of his possessions, any of his extended family, and go to Egypt and completely start over. Jesus turned Joseph's life upside down. So we pick up in chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. I would guess that they were in Egypt long enough to have some real needs. The text doesn't tell us how long, but we know that it wasn't a weekend camping trip. It was probably around a year long. It was long enough to need a permanent residence, a source of income. About the time he would have been able to start getting his life in order and in place, Joseph has the audacity to fall asleep again, which he might be uh, (laughs) dreading at this point, and he has another dream, and And boom, again, for the third time, Jesus turns Joseph's life upside down. So they head back home, but soon he finds he can't really go home, because in verse 22 we read, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. At this point, if I was Joseph, I would really dread having dreams. This one doesn't give us a direct quote, but he's told he can't go home. He needs to go somewhere else. So he lands in Nazareth. Every plan that Joseph had, every plan that Joseph made, every aspect of Joseph's life was turned upside down by the presence of Jesus. How did your plans change when Jesus entered the picture. Again, I really want you to think about this question. Is anything about your life different because of Jesus? Was your life turned upside down when he was brought into the picture? Did he rewrite the trajectory that you were on? Because if everything looks the same today as it did before you were a Christian, then you haven't done anything anything except soothe your conscience. Your daily choices should change. Your friends should change. Your priorities should change. Your parenting goals change. Your bank account changes. Your schedule looks different. I mean, I could go on and on. I want to circle back for just a second to my introduction. When we had Braxton, everything changed. A life that was once centered around ourselves became centered around another human. It was definitely a death to self, but it was also a glorious transformation. Are you living for yourself, or are you living for Christ? Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3, if you would turn there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. We read, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If we backed up a little bit and read, you would find that Paul had everything going for him. But everything in the world is rubbish when it's held up to Christ. Rubbish, trash, garbage, refuse. It's easy to read over that word and miss the power of what he is saying. Paul's saying, what I had seemed good at the time, but I had no idea how incredibly small and puny and disgusting and pathetic my life was until I shined the light of Christ on it. And what I saw as so, so good and so, so valuable became something to to literally discard with the trash. The the Scripture doesn't give us any insight into Joseph's view of the birth of Christ later on in Scripture. We aren't really even given insight about his feelings as he was going through it. So we have to make some assumptions. I assume that it was difficult. Death to self always is. I'm also confident that as Joseph looked back on it, if you had asked him, Joseph, was it worth it? he would fall in line with Paul, and he would say it was worth it a million times over. You mean my plans to marry and stay in this town and open a carpentry shop? That compared with this? You know, on, on that side of things, on the side of, the side of life where we make the plans, what we have laid out before us it's fleeting joy, uncertainty, and fading and wilting existence. Look at James chapter 1. starting in verse 10. Because like a flower of the grass, and and the rich in his humiliation, I'm going to back up to verse 9, excuse me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst. Of his pursuits, I could go on and on, and we could point ourselves to other verses, but when we make the plans, what we have laid before us is a, is a physical life that is perishing and will pass. We might have joy at times in our riches and the pleasures of life, but it's fleeting. It doesn't stay. We might think that we have certainty, but we quickly find that life is very uncertain. We might think that we're holding on to things that are lasting, but we find that they fade and wilt as quickly as the grass does when the summer heat hits it. As quickly as the flower can lose its petals, uh, we can lose our grip on everything that we have. But on the other side of things, on the side of things where we subscribe ourselves to God's plans, we find a, a different picture. We find a persistent joy. We find a stability, and we find eternal glory. I could back up just in, in the same chapter to James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Joy and stability. Right there in the same verse. Jump down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Eternal glory. Okay? Ja- uh, Jake this morning um, took us to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Persistent joy even when life is hard, because we have an eternal glory to look forward to. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a passage we've looked at several times in the last couple of months. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, down in verse 16. Paul writes this to the the Christians in Corinth. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. First thing that he talks about is our inner self being renewed. Then he goes on to talk about the eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison looking to the unseen, looking to the eternal instead of physical and transient things. So let's pause, because I don't want to lose sight of where we came from or where this lesson started. I'm going to ask you again the question. Every plan that Joseph had and every plan that Joseph made, every aspect of his life was turned upside down by Jesus Christ. How did your plans change when Jesus entered the picture? We don't have to mourn for Joseph. This is where I'm going with this. We don't have to to mourn for Joseph. We don't have to be sad for all the things that he lost because what he gained was so much more. You see, everything changes, but once you've experienced it, once you've experienced it, you wouldn't trade it for the world. The birth of Jesus is often celebrated at Christmas, and a birth is definitely a thing to celebrate. That said, I can't help but notice a tinge of irony as I look at Consumerism and the materialism of our culture. I'm sure y'all all feel that too. Christmas for many has become a holiday of self gratification. The birth of Jesus, the man through whom we celebrate death to self, has become an excuse to focus on ourselves and our stuff. And I want to encourage you tonight to not get pulled into that trap. On Tuesday, you're going to probably unwrap some gifts. And I hope that you'll take time to pause take time to give thanks for Christ, and take time to examine yourself. I hope you'll ask yourself, how has the arrival of Jesus changed my life? What does it mean for me? How do I look different today because of him? A lot of the gifts we'll open on Tuesday will be quickly forgotten. Some of them may have a little more of a lasting impact than others. They might even be around for years, but not a single one of them will you carry with you to eternity. May we never allow our stuff or self to obscure our view of God. You know, our personal plans are really no different than the physical gifts. They seem exciting and they seem important, especially when we are discovering them, when we're opening them, when we're revealing them. And they may even be useful for a spell, but not a single one of our personal plans will go with us into eternity either. God's plan will reign on Judgment Day, not yours. If you've not been saved, God desires for you to experience salvation to the fullest. Peter tells us that God is patient, that he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And while it may seem counterintuitive to give up everything to follow him, you won't regret it. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, here's what he calls you to do. Okay, we're called to die to ourself. The act of setting ourselves aside, of placing God's will first. Okay, that's, that's one of the first steps towards salvation. We often call it repentance. Okay? You need to be baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6 talks about how baptism attaches us to Christ who was raised from the dead. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You will be raised to walk in newness of life. A death to self, an attachment to Christ in baptism, and then submit yourself to God's will. Later on in the chapter, verse 22, Romans 6, 22, it describes this as being a slave to God. In fact, I'm going to read verse 20 through 23 as we wrap up tonight's lesson. I believe it wraps up nicely what we've talked about tonight. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may choose things whose end is death, or you may choose things whose end is life. Joseph responded to the presence of Christ by setting himself aside and being obedient. How will you respond? During the singing of this next song, you are invited to come forward. If your life has not yet been changed by Christ, I would encourage you not to wait. You aren't promised tomorrow, and the water is ready for baptism. If you need prayers for forgiveness or you need to repent, maybe you have slipped. Tonight is the night to change and to recommit yourself. Whatever you need, um, be it prayers or any of those, come forward